Welcome to the Solana Podcast. I'm Austin. Today, we're doing things a little different. For this episode, I'm joined by Amira, who's the policy lead at the Solana Foundation. Great to have you co-host this episode. Thanks, Austin. Great to be here. Uh, Well, earlier this year, Austin and I received a very interesting invitation to spend a week in Greenland with a group of climate activists, blockchain industry leaders, NFT artists, and nonprofit veterans. The premise was to bring a bunch of people together who never talked to each other, put them face to face with destruction being caused by climate change, and find a space to work together. Austin and I weren't sure what to expect, but we're both personally passionate about climate and wanted an opportunity to learn about how else the Solana Foundation could lead in the space. Also, we were just curious. What happens when you put Greenpeace in the room with someone who works at one of the biggest Bitcoin pools in the world? Turns out, it was pretty interesting. The conversation today is with a couple of our fellow travelers, a Greenpeace activist and a man who, until recently, worked for one of the world's largest Bitcoin mining pools. Rolf Scar is a 15-year veteran of Greenpeace USA. His career spans living deep in the Amazon rainforest with indigenous tribes to advocating on behalf of the environment at the UN and now figuring out what Greenpeace should do about blockchain. Daniel Huang is a true Bitcoin OG. He had his Tyler Durden moment in 2012 when he rage quit a law firm and began Bitcoin mining in earnest. Most recently, he worked at Stakefish and F2 Pool, two of the world's largest mining and validator operators. And he's now one of the co-founders of the blockchain infrastructure Carbon Offset Working Group and Validator Commons. This episode is part of a broader series of climate episodes that we'll be doing on the podcast to shed light on work at the intersection of blockchain and climate change. It's a bit different from what we typically do on the Solana podcast, but thought it was important to use this platform to highlight the climate crisis and the role that the Web3 community can play in it. Rolf and Daniel, thank you so much for being here. I'm, I'm so excited to get to co-host the podcast with Austin. Rolf, would love to learn from you. you know, tell us, what do you do? Like, wh- what is your job right now? What do I do? Well, trying to save the planet, especially address the climate crises. I'm a little surprised to be here. I didn't think I'd be working on blockchain or Bitcoin or any of this. But to give you a little background, you know, Greenpeace and I, we start backwards from the big things we're trying to achieve. So for us right now, the number one priority is climate change, maybe not surprisingly. And of all the things that we feel like we can contribute to address climate change, the number one thing is to phase out the use of fossil fuels and usher in a transition to clean and renewable energy sources. So for many years, I knew about Bitcoin and crypto, wasn't terribly well informed, but, you know, knew enough. And then in recent years, as the energy consumption for proof of work mining went up and up and up, and as miners moved from China to the U.S. to restart coal plants and fossil fuel power plants, suddenly it was like entering my space. And it was something that we realized we'd have to engage on. It's funny you describe Bitcoin as something that popped up on your radar, because I think most people would say Greenpeace is something that occasionally pops up on their radar when there's some large demonstration or event that captures the public attention. How much of the organization's work is that kind of stuff that I think most people say, if you think of Greenpeace, you think of people protesting, maybe they're jumping off a building, they're doing something like that versus how much of it is sort of the backroom standards of running an NGO? Good question. Yeah, we're not crazy, but often we're known for civil disobedience. Nonviolent direct action is a big part of who we've been and who we are today. And we think it's an important tool for change making. If you look at just about any movement that's been successful over the years, uh, peacefully breaking the law to draw attention to problems and to push folks to do better is, is a big part of what we do. 
day to day, no, you know, I don't have my climbing harness on right now and I'm not planning a, a nonviolent direct action. But in the right place at the right time, it can really help catalyze activism. Uh, it can attract attention and it can disrupt business as usual, which is a big part of what we're struggling with today. Daniel, let's go to you uh, because you, I think, have a really interesting story at the trajectory of Bitcoin and blockchain more broadly and climate. So let's start with with your story when you, I believe, rage quit a law firm and started mining Bitcoin. <laughs> How did you get into the space? I was working at a law firm. I think the biggest thing for me was I didn't want to put myself in a, a position that was maybe contributing to society that maybe was a bit more negative. There was like this case um, in 2012, it was like the a congressional hearing with HSBC. They had been caught helping money launderers and terrorist financiers, which is funny, right? Because a lot of people say people use Bitcoin for that now. But I left and it was sort of my, I think I told you, Amira, it was like my Tyler Durden moment where I was like, okay, the financial system is too far gone. So my friend was like, hey, there's this thing called Bitcoin. I, I know you want to like, quote unquote, burn down the banks. Let's, let's do this. And so we just went all in and we're like, you know, this is rage against the machine. And there's a lot that happened till now. But to kind of tie it to the context here, it's, I don't think I ever really thought about the environment in terms of the sort of consensus mechanisms and, and everything that's involved with consensus with Bitcoin. I think as the cryptocurrency and specifically the Bitcoin market cap and ecosystem has grown, there has been that sort of attention. But yeah, in the beginning, it was just about sort of the censorship resistance. And most recently, you were at F2 Pool and Stakefish. Can you tell us what the what those are and what you did there? I've actually now resigned from both of them <laughs> as of last week for ideological reasons, um, some of which may kind of overlap with what we talk about today. But yeah, F2 Pool had been for the longest time the largest Bitcoin mining pool in the world. And then Stakefish, which is its sister company, is a proof of stake validator. I was heading the protocols team at Stakefish and leading the special projects team at F2 Pool. Rolf, you started touching on this, but tell me the point at which Bitcoin or maybe crypto came across your desk. Like, what was, where did it go from? oh, I've sort of read about the news to, oh man, like this is something that we should really be concerned about. Yeah, actually a couple of years ago. So Greenpeace is a third party donation policy that applies globally, like not only not governments and corporations, but what other sources of, of contributions will we not take? And at, in 2019, that was revised to say that energy intensive cryptocurrencies would be off the table for us. So like Greenpeace USA took a contribution that was changed into U.S. dollars from a donor that was Bitcoin in like 2014. And then after 2019, we realized there was a problem here with energy consumption. And so we didn't really want to touch it anymore in terms of our own contributions. So I was involved with some of that. And then late last year, uh, there was a coalition of groups coming together and a funder that was talking about, we think we can make the impossible happen and we need some folks to work on this. And they approached Greenpeace. Would you like to work on changing Bitcoin's code. A lot of people are intimidated by that. Um, and to that, we said, of course, like we work on all kinds of crazy things. Like that's sort of what we do. We, we take on big projects. We have a vision that people tell us cannot possibly be uh, made possible. Um, and then we get to work on it. So um, early 
This year, we launched a Change the Code Coalition with the Environmental Working Group and some local partners and have been pushing uh, to, well, pushing Bitcoin to do better, but mostly it's an invitation, quite frankly. We're not pro or anti-Bitcoin, which is strange for a lot of people in the space. They're used to being tribal and fighting and which side are you on? We're just inviting folks to collaborate with us to find systemic solutions. And let me, I want to get to that in a sec to talk about sort of the work that's done there. But but before we move too far from from the Change the Code Coalition, I want to dig in more to your thoughts there. And, and maybe we could just start to say like, can you talk more about what the proposal is, Rolf, or, or how, how are you thinking of getting people to change the Bitcoin code, what this looks like? Yeah, it's a good question. We're used to working with companies or industries or governments, you know, uh, something where there's discrete and clear decision making, not a distributed ecosystem. So this is a new one for us. But at the same time, we believe that that invitation to collaborate, to come up with something new, can apply to anybody. It can apply to an individual Bitcoin enthusiast. It can apply to the big companies that have or are planning to invest in the business and to make a lot of money off of Bitcoin. You know, if you look at, I know this is like a third rail for those in the Bitcoin community, but financial asset managers and banks are getting in big and I have nothing to do with that. But if they're going to do that, most of them have clear climate commitments. And so what can they bring to the table to identify the problems that would be involved in shifting Bitcoin from business as usual proof of work to something new. POW part two, call it proof of useful work, call it something new. I don't think it'll be what Ethereum just did. I think it'll be something new. I'm not the technical expert here, but I know that there's enough brains, there's enough money and creativity to make this happen. And I think it's kind of inevitable over time. It's hard to imagine that the system that was set up in 2009 if you think about the context here with the climate crisis and everything else that's going to be coming at humanity will be exactly the same in 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, or 50 years. Like at some point there'll be a transition, I believe. And the best transitions are ones that are like proactive and managed, not done in a crisis situation like last minute. Yeah. You know, it's funny because the first time I heard about this initiative was Twitter. Surprise, surprise. And the first way you see it is you see a lot of people tweeting, oh, this is a dumb idea. Greenpeace thinks there's a central company that runs the Bitcoin code and they can just change the Bitcoin code, right? And that was the sort of the day one take on it. But, you know, even if that had been the approach, which was not the approach to it, um, it hits out something pretty profound, which is there's a lot of tautologies in blockchain. And one of them is if no one's in charge of something, no one can change anything, which is very much not how it works, right? This is one of those kind of funny instances where uh, you can look at the Bitcoin community and you can say, you know, if enough people agree that we actually need to change some part of the core code of this to run on a different model, uh, it, Bitcoin is only valuable because everyone agrees that this code is the thing that this code is. And so if people start thinking, oh, actually, maybe it's time to change this code in a different way, that's no more or less valid than the current version of it that exists. And it doesn't require a central entity or even a central planning committee to say, oh, we are actually moving this code from one thing to another. That's exactly right. And yeah, part of the re initial response is you're dumb. You don't know what you're talking about. I've heard that before. Um, and this, <laughs> I think there's a huge opportunity here. Like Another response was, you should just write your own code, then pro propose it today, then. 
you know, since it's open source and anyone can do it. Well, we're not that dumb. We understand that what we're trying to do through this campaign, and I think we'll succeed longer term, is build the social consensus, you know, enough critical mass within the ecosystem to say, yeah, actually, we'd like that. And as with the 2017 shift in Bitcoin, you know, there was a bit of a fork. I'd expect that there'd be a fork with something like this. And I would also expect that the best or most popular version will thrive. Um, and I think going forward, people are going to be more and more concerned about climate, not less. So Rolf, I, I was probably one of the guys, I didn't say like it's dumb, but like I remember when we were on a panel in Greenland, I was like, yeah, that's probably never going to happen. That was like my gut reaction. That being said, especially with what Austin said and what you also reiterated, Rolf, is that social consensus is ultimately sort of like what ends up determining things. Um, that was very clear even in the early days of crypto, or relatively early days of crypto when Ethereum went through its hard fork into Ethereum and Ethereum Classic, where there's like you had these sort of diehards that said code is law. I will admit I was one of those guys who was like the code is law maxi and I was on the side of Ethereum Classic. But then, you know, quickly realized, and I wouldn't say it's from being jaded, but a chain is only as good as its community. If no one is using the chain or no one values it or buys it, then that chain is dead no matter how correct or ideologically aligned it, it is. And that you can probably say the same thing of, of Bitcoin. And I would even say, and, and you were mentioning this earlier, Rolf, about how a lot of these global institutions want to have some sort of like exposure to a potentially self-sovereign currency. And maybe this part is a bit jaded of me, but if, for example, let's say we, we fork Bitcoin and then transition it into a much less energy intensive mechanism and all the banks in the world are like, okay, we're going to, we're going to adopt this form of Bitcoin. So there's that group of people. There's also the diehard libertarian proof of work is the only way forward group of people. And then there's also like the people who use it day to day or speculate on it. That main, let's say retail group of people that perhaps make up the majority of the users as opposed to the small libertarian hyper POW supporters, the retail, I think, would probably go with the adoption that they're going to get from institutions that that support the non-energy intensive consensus model, which would then say at, it perhaps line, aligns quite well with the initiatives that Greenpeace has naturally done with the social support right and i and i could and i'll change my my answer from what we we talked about on that panel in greenland uh that we could have a bitcoin that's much less energy intensive because it was uh i wouldn't say forced but because it was widely adopted it's just adoption right it's 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 as simple as that so I, I officially changed my answer, Rolf. <laughs> Daniel's just full of announcements on this podcast. No. So, so I have a question about this, which is, you know, like the change to the code campaign says that we really only need 30 to 50 really highly involved stakeholders to to actually change the code. Like, is that true? T tactically, what would it take from a, from a pure stakeholder perspective? Especially given what you just said, Daniel, which is like, 
So the hardcore folks are probably going to be the last ones to leave proof of work. Yeah, that that's an attempt, you know, that, that language is an attempt to show what happened in 2017 with Bitcoin, where there's a small number of gatekeepers who actually, you know, virtually or in real life, I don't know the details, sat down to make a shift in Bitcoin's code previously. That it's it's not as if there's a vote of millions of people around the world. But I think to get to that point where code can be uptaken into the system, pushed out to nodes, et cetera, we do need the millions of people. We need the big players in the space, whether they're individual investors, uh, mining pools even, um, you know, the, the, the platforms that buy and sell Bitcoin. And, and yeah, some of these institutions that want increased exposure in the space to agree, to create that sort of initial momentum to develop solutions. Um, and so the big problems, this is the same, this is where Bitcoin is the same as some of the other industries I've worked on, which is change won't happen unless you address the main concerns. Like most industries that are polluting the climate don't want to change right now because X, Y, and Z. Well, let's name X, Y, and Z. I, I think I have a sense of those things around decentralization and security and some other key issues. And then let's try to figure out what are possible solutions to those things. If we're inventing something new, you know, you're not just critiquing what's out there already, but you're, you're looking forward and saying, Bitcoin changed the world once. It could probably do the same again. What are some creative and new ways to address those concerns so that no one has to pick between security and decentralization in a real way and, and you know, this thing that they, that they love? So, uh, so the, the 30 is sort of a, was a way to communicate that in fact, that was sort of part of Bitcoin's history, that it can change, it has changed, and we believe it can again. Yeah, so when you're looking at like how we can change code again, I mean, so first off, I love the code is law thing because like if law was law, we wouldn't have anywhere near as many lawyers as we do. <laughs> so the idea that like somehow code being, I mean, you can say code is absolute, code is religious law maybe, but you have code being law is like, it doesn't really solve many of our problems here. The, the piece that I think is, is so challenging here is the question about what the future of Bitcoin is, right? Bitcoin is the last major proof of work protocol out there. There's some other things that run on proof of work, but like they're not particularly interesting. And, and I don't think anyone's thinking about them as being a major component of a world economic system. The future of Bitcoin is a very interesting one because it also is the only chain that doesn't have smart contracts on it. It, do, it lacks a lot of the programmability that other chains have had. And I think a lot of the proponents of Bitcoin would say the point of Bitcoin is that it doesn't change. And so the ask to be made here, I, I think it's sort of one of those ones where the, the, the blatant self-interest is potentially the most powerful lever here to push Either Daniel or Rolf, what do you see as as those levers to actually make folks look at this and say, not I want to do this for the environment, but I want to do this for my own economic self-interest? I think economic self-interest is probably the biggest point. So when I started mining Bitcoin, I wasn't necessarily in it for the money because it didn't cost anything. I was just doing it as like a statement of we're going to replace the banks. Let's let's contribute to it, right? I'm hooking up my machines as part of this global network. Nowadays, it's it's very different, mostly because the costs have gone up so much because the price of Bitcoin has gone up so much. But the key there is that good behavior, according to like the Bitcoin system, 
of right a miner contributes by downloading the software, running the software, and then contributing to that sort of block building process, their good behavior is is incentivized. It's it's not reliant on any sort of altruism because they get paid. And and I would even go as far as to say that many miners and large-scale mining farms, they don't give a shit about decentralization or self-sovereignty or censorship resistance or corruption resistance. They only get they only care about getting paid money for the Bitcoin that's obviously valuable to others. That's, I think, the most fascinating part about human psychology or organization psychology, right? You can depend on, with high probability, certain organizations and entities to behave in a certain way because they're getting paid, not because you're in their favor and then altruism is going to rule out. You you get into this sort of prisoner's dilemma that oftentimes people are sometimes selfish. So if we can define good behavior in such a way and we can we can create certain incentives to support that good behavior where it does involve like a win-win, then maybe that is one of the paths that we we can take. But it's not for lack of interests, but it's perhaps the the incentive and how that mechanism has been designed. We just need to have someone come up with a way or a system or a mechanism that does kind of like point them in the right direction, right? Hold the carrot in front of the donkey, even though the donkey doesn't want to go that way. It will go that way eventually. So, Rolf, I'm sure this is all you've been thinking about, right? Because a lot of what you've done throughout your career is figure out sort of where these pressure points are and understand how to maximally leverage them in a lot of ways and, and often create some really fun uh, PR campaigns that get traction out of them too. So how do you think about this issue? How do you think about changing incentives in Bitcoin land to incentivize changing the code? Yeah, there's two sets of incentives. One is just the way that proof of work mining works, which is different than other technologies I've worked on, like data centers. You know, Google doesn't want to pay for more electricity than it needs. And if it can, it would love to be more and more efficient. There's a built-in financial incentive to get more efficient over time, even if usage goes up. You know, the way that proof of work manifests in the world is kind of the opposite. I don't know of another technology that works like that, where the more it's used, and not only does it go up, but the incentive is to use more and more electricity, not less. And there's, you know, projections are projections, but I'm concerned not only about where things are now, but where they would go if Bitcoin were to scale up to the level of ambition that a lot of folks who are, you know, enthusiasts about Bitcoin want it to go, you know, to supplant the U.S. dollar then that sort of curve of electricity consumption starts to look almost unfathomable. Like it's, 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 it's clear that that can't match with a livable climate. And so I just wanted to call out that incentive. Fundamentally, that's what we're trying to do is shift the incentives within the system around that sort of behavior that we believe doesn't match uh, with the urgency of the climate crisis. In terms of motivating people, yeah, money's a big one. I mean, money's a big one. And we're not going to rely on people's quote-unquote altruism. Although I, I think the lines are starting to blur. Like, I don't think of appealing to people's altruism so much as appealing to people's self-interest. And I live in California where, you know, I've been here for 15 years and I've seen the difference. Like, uh, smoke-filled skies for weeks on end. Um folks in the Gulf Coast states, people in Puerto Rico, people in Pakistan, like suddenly this isn't about altruism. This is kind of about, you know, 
a, a livable present and a livable future. Like a lot of the conversations we had in the environmental movement in the past talked a lot about your kids and your grandkids. And now it's really shifted to, it's actually about us right now. And so I think the financial incentives and self-interest, again, are, are starting to really align in a way that should motivate people to embrace this change. So, um, you know, there's, there's, it depends on the audience. So if we're talking to companies that are engaged in Bitcoin business and they have climate commitments, they've got to square this up. They've got to figure out how that matches so that their words are not empty and they're not called out for being part of greenwashing. Yeah. I'm actually really curious. What was the feedback? I'm sure you've reached out to companies like Fidelity that have added Bitcoin to IRAs and 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 done that sort of work that you do in addition to this. What has the feedback been and how has the response been from the institutional players that obviously are not creating Bitcoin, but they are intricately involved in the custodying and the transferring of the asset? Yeah, they're in stage one, which is denial. So I'll share that not details, but just let you know that, you know, Fidelity Investments doesn't really want to talk about the issue. And it's clear that they may not have either a sense that there's enough of a, a business reason for them to engage with NGOs or on this issue, or they don't know what they think about it yet. I'm not sure how to interpret that lack of wanting to talk. That's not um, unusual. Like we usually start in that place with institutions and then as they hear from customers, um, as they, you know, get more pressure, we hope that they'll want to collaborate. You know, they don't have to talk to me. This isn't some personal thing where I need, I need them to talk to me. But to engage on the issue in a substantive way, because we think that, you know, if you're offering Bitcoin as an investment, you know, to everyone in the U.S. that you offer 401ks to, you know, that could potentially drive the price up. You're going to be profiting from that. And we think that there'll be a straight line connection to the, the associated carbon emissions. Um, so right now, yeah, it's a lot of, it's a lot of sort of like ignoring the problem. And so that's where advocacy comes in. That's where mobilizing people power comes in to let them know that actually this is something they simply have to pay attention to. And Daniel, I'm, I'm mindful of time, but I know that some of the work you're doing with the blockchain infrastructure climate working group is sort of aimed around looking at these incentives, you're thinking about how we can work from like the blockchain community to make sure that infrastructure is cleaner. I'm zooming out beyond Bitcoin and more into blockchain more broadly, but but can you tell us what, what that group does and a bit about it? The working group basically started of, I was like, hey, let's round up infrastructure providers. Let's do measurements, figure out how to calculate emissions for all the infrastructure service providers, uh, these validators, the, the mining pools, then go to chains there's there's this NFT project that does like ratings called Fungi Proof that I think renamed to Scry. They were doing actual like level transaction level analysis on like the emissions for for NFTs and those collections because like the NFT market was like pretty hot back then. And we finished that and we open sourced them all in a, in a GitHub repo. And then we were like, okay, we have a group of people, and it was like less than ten people at the time because KlimaDAO had not launched yet. And it was all the climate people who were involved with crypto in, in one group. Klimadon and Toucan were part of that and they launched. And then that summer, it was just like, everyone was trying to do climate projects on crypto. And then we were like, okay, now we can organize. I really do think that one of the most important value adds that blockchain tech and, and like the speculative part of crypto and then uh, and the excitement that it brings is that innovation space where you can have a lot of really cool 
products and companies and organizations and, and, and piece them together to figure out a way of solving some of these more difficult and intractable climate issues that, that we've been dealing with, right? Carbon credits come to mind as, as one example that has been taking off. It wasn't until pretty recently, honestly, that I realized there was such a big group of folks at the intersection of blockchain and climate. And I learned so much about sort of this space via these folks. And and one of the things that came out of Greenland was like, wow, there's a lot of meat here. Like there's a lot, a lot of work to do, but but there's a lot of vibrancy in the space. And Rolf, I just want to ask you, like, what do you make of blockchain people? Like, I feel like you've probably gone through a journey where you get into the Bitcoin world, you hear a lot of people talk about saving the world. You know, what's what's sort of your take at this point after spending a bunch of time with people in the space? You know, how much of it is, in your estimation, real and interesting or what parts are real and interesting? And maybe what parts do you think are people just maybe patting themselves on the back, but but not doing much? Yeah, what do I think of blockchain people? Um, well, a lot like everyone else. Um, I, I, I've tried to tell people that, you know, this isn't just a bunch of bros in Silicon Valley. And, you know, that seems to be very true. There's folks that come into the space from lots of different backgrounds and interests. It's very eclectic. Um, I think people in general seem to be very passionate, which is good. They seem to be very intelligent, which is also good. And they seem to be very creative. So I like that, that sort of raw material in terms of the human capital here to apply to, you know, some of the biggest challenges that humanity is facing. Um, people are self-interested. Sometimes people get attached to, you know, the thing they're working on, the thing that is their source of income and the rest of it, but that's no different than any other industry. And I think there's a lot of folks who are genuinely concerned about climate change, for example. Um, and there's some that I met at Greenland who clearly we might have some differences of opinion. Like, I'm not sure, not convinced that offsets will save the world, that not opposed to offsets, but they're sort of what you do after you've done everything else. Like, you, you know, you, you transition, you reduce your emissions by as much as actually possible, not just what you think is politically possible in the moment, the small p there. And then you can add offsets on top of that. But just sort of saying we're carbon neutral because we paid for someone else to do the work, that, that doesn't add up. We need both. We need both real world emissions reductions, especially from fossil fuels. And then we can add funding for good projects, regeneration, all the rest of it. What makes me interested is not only, as I mentioned before, like the opportunity to avoid a whole lot of future emissions by shifting Bitcoin away from the current way of doing things, terms of validation, but stuff that's not credits. Um, you know, it seems like blockchain is really well suited to deal with credits and monetary transactions. But, you know, you have big, big companies like Walmart that are talking about engaging all of their suppliers to contribute to gigatons of climate reductions. And those supply chains are dizzyingly complex and full of a lack of transparency and go all the way back down to places where corruption and lack of transparency is encouraged for lots of reasons. If blockchain tools could be used to shine a light on those supply chains that trace to all parts of the world and some truly sticky problems and make verification and validation of climate positive practices more of a reality, that to me would outstrip all of the all the credits that you'd want to try to buy or get on the marketplace in the, in the coming years. Yeah, I want to echo what Rolf is saying. Like the supply chain problem is probably one of the biggest. This was such a fun conversation. I appreciate you being here. Before we sign off, just want to give you all 
15, 20 seconds to plug something with the audience, something that you want them to look into or explore a little more or a place you want to send them. Daniel, anything you want to plug? Be less selfish and be more cognizant about the stakeholder that's our planet that definitely needs a say in some of our decision-making at all levels of society. I love that. That's a great one. And, and Rolf, any, uh, any last thing you want to plug? Yeah, I just want folks to think of themselves as activists. You know, Greenpeace is not in charge of the climate or the future of our planet. We're, we're here to build people power and to work together. So go to cleanupbitcoin.com and greenpeace.org to get involved. Again, support us in any way you'd like, but mostly we'd love for you to be involved. Thank you both so much. We really appreciate the time and keep fighting the good fight. Thanks for joining us.